1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Betty Lai, the author of The Grant Writing Guide, A Roadmap for Scholars. Welcome to the show, Betty. Thank you so much, Christina. It's so nice to be here. I am so glad you're here, and we get to talk about this important guide for grant writing. I know um, most of us wish we had that long ago, so we're thrilled that it exists now. Before we dive into it, could you tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. So professionally, I am an associate professor at Boston College in counseling psychology, and as a researcher, I study children's responses to traumatic events like disasters. things like Hurricane Katrina or flooding or um, heat waves, how children respond to those types of events, and how we can help prevent the onset of serious psychological distress after these events. But in addition to my work on disasters, I'm really invested in helping scholars gain support for their ideas and understand how to navigate higher ed and academia. So that's something that I spent the past two years thinking deeply about. And that's what culminated in this book that we're talking about today.
0: One thing I love to ask scholars is how they came to where they are now. When you were looking ahead to college, did you know what you want to study? Did you have a clear pathway forward? Absolutely not.
1: <laughs> um, when I was in college, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, uh, but I was really fortunate to have a friend who got very excited about the opportunities to teach after college. And so after college, I was a middle school math and science teacher, and I really loved that work. But when I was a school teacher, I found that I was fascinated and worried about the issues that students were bringing into the classroom because I saw a lot of anxiety symptoms and depression symptoms among my students. And it wasn't like they were leaving those issues at the doorway and ready to talk about math the second they walked in the door. I saw that it was really important to think about, well, what is happening in your life and how is that influencing what's happening in the classroom? Because it's hard to talk about the shapes of triangles if you are dealing with really big issues, which all of our students are. So that interest in the things that were happening to my students that they were dealing with in terms of social and emotional issues is what made me go back to graduate school. I went and trained in how to become a child psychologist. But when I went back to get my PhD as a child psychologist, I really pictured myself as somebody who would end up having a private practice that I'd be working individually or in groups with children and their families. So that was what I went to graduate school to do. I was really training and hoping to have my own practice. But in the course of graduate school, I just discovered that I loved research. So for any graduate student that might be listening, I actually made a pivot very late in my graduate training, probably not until um, my last year or two of graduate training. In clinical psychology, you do an internship year, it's your residency year. And it was during that residency year that I realized, "Ah, I really want to be and academic. And so I was already in year five of my training at that point. And that's the point at which I said, well, if I want to make this pivot to being a researcher, there's a lot that I need to do and learn. So I went back and did a postdoc, a research-based postdoc. And from there went on to Uh, secure faculty job and um, and then another faculty job, which is how I ended up where I am now. But long story short, I had a very winding path through um, starting as a school teacher to training as a child psychologist, to, to pivoting, to thinking about a research scholarly career and to where I am today, where I'm very fortunate. I really believe I have a dream job where I get to teach and do research and work with outstanding students. But I had a very winding pathway, and I just want to encourage anybody, if you're feeling like you want to make pivots, that I have found that that has been the way that I've been able to have a career that I really love, and I, I hope that for others too.
0: It sounds like a very authentic and organic path, and that philosophy comes through in the grant writing guide, that one of the things you encourage us to do is know our passions and our values, and then seek funding after that. What encouraged you to write the Grant Writing Guide? Writing a book is a big deal. You have to have a passion to get through to the end. What inspired you to write it? You know, I'm so glad you asked this question, Christina,
1: because actually I have been waiting for, you know, the past 15 years uh, for somebody to write this book. I've been looking for this book. I actually, as you heard in my story, I never focused on grant writing um, during my graduate career because I was really focused on clinical training. So I never learned how to write a grant until I was an assistant professor. And I got that job not Ever having written a grant, not thinking that it would be part of my job to write grants. But when I was two weeks into my very first job, a senior administrator met with me and they said, You need to secure a federal grant. And I was so terrified at that point because I had no idea how to write a grant. And even worse, I didn't know what they meant when they said you need a federal grant. I didn't know why that word federal was important, what it, what the distinction was that they were trying to make. So I really had no idea where to start. And I was looking for a book like this, that would help me figure out the landscape of grant writing and how to get started. And I struggled so badly. There are lots of great books out there on the market on grant writing, but a lot of them start in a different place from, where I start. And what I was looking for when I was struggling was, well, how do you even know what grant to write? How do you know what ideas to generate? And um, a lot of the books that I was finding and trying to read, they assumed that I already knew, oh, you're writing a National Science Foundation grant, here's how to do it. Or you want to write a National Institutes of Health grant, here's how you write that grant. But I didn't even know at that early point in my career, well, which grant should I be writing? And I was struggling so badly with this. And luckily I was very fortunate to find great mentors, but um, this book was about helping other people who might end up in a similar situation so that you don't have to feel stuck and unsure of where to find information. So that's why I wrote this book because I know that I struggled so much early in my career. And I feel like there's a lot of information that we know that we can share to help others succeed in their careers.
0: And you can quit before you start in a situation like that. The word federal, I don't know why, but it's terrifying. Somehow, I think when we start with grants, we want to start with something small and community-based. But when they add big words like that or very bureaucratic words, it starts to feel incredibly pressuring. And when you do look for resources, usually there's some on websites. Usually there's a colleague who's applied already for something. But there can be sort of the overwhelming feeling that I can't do this and we can quit before we start. And the grant writing guide is called the roadmap for scholars because it really tells you that there, there is a pathway to do this. And while it's laid out in chapters, you have it very clearly in the, the uh, chapter of the book outline, you have task A, task B, task C, task D. But for people who are starting at the beginning, like you described your first experience, we sometimes have more questions than we know what to do with. And so towards the back of the book, you have um, a list of tips and frequently asked questions. And so you can go to those frequently asked questions and figure out which chapter will start addressing those questions. So if you start sort of with question soup, You can go to the tips and sort of get your questions worked through. So there's multiple ways to come into this book. How did you design the book? What made you lay it out the way that you did?
1: Yes. Well, and and thank you so much for highlighting that aspect of the book because that's exactly what I hope people can do as they're using this book, you know, get their questions answered and, and have a way to start because at the end of the day, grant writing is just a skill and sometimes we give the wrong message that grant writing is really about people who have the best talent, the best ideas, but this is about making sure that your best ideas get heard, you as an individual scholar, um, and so that you don't count yourself out or don't sit on the sidelines thinking that this isn't possible because this really is just a skill that everybody can develop with hard work and practice and this idea of questions actually came out out of getting to read Laura Portwood Stacer's book, the book proposal book. She does such a fantastic job in that book of not only laying out information, but then also telling other people, um, okay, here are the common questions that I've heard and see if any of these resonate with you and here are the answers. And so I was hoping to do some of that work too in this book and you know, really accumulate the questions that I hear most often about grant writing and hopefully, help people find the answers to those questions quickly, because I know as a professor and as a faculty member, that sometimes the questions, just like you said, Christina, the questions are where you get stuck and they can keep you from moving forward at all. So I wanted to make sure that people had a way to get their questions answered, or at least the most common questions, um, so that hopefully the questions themselves wouldn't be the sticking point in terms of finding success with grant writing.
0: It says on the back of the book that grant writing is a major determinant of promotion and tenure at colleges and universities. And I made a little margin note to myself that it's also a source of funding for people who are all ac for mm-hmm. non-funding nonprofit uh, projects for community engagement programs for scholarly journals, for literary journals, and for creative artists of all forms of art. So grant writing becomes a large part of how many of us sustain our careers, but grad school doesn't tell us how to write grants.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I'm so glad you're bringing up these points because uh, this is absolutely what happened to me as well. Although I will say I was fortunate to go to a program that did have grant writing classes, But I didn't even take those classes because I was never interested in grant writing. I really didn't understand the point of grant writing. For me, it always seemed like, well, grants are so hard to get. Why would you invest your time that way? It seemed like a waste of time. But that is really a misconception about what grants can do for your career that I hope we can dispel for not just graduate students, but I hear this same type of idea from folks who are early or even mid-career, late career as well. Um, not, really, uh, not really knowing, because we don't talk about it enough, what the power is of grant writing, which is really to have avenues to shape your career and to get support for your ideas. Um, but that is, for me, not understand. I thought grants were just about money. So that's why I never invested in grant writing skills, besides the fact that I wasn't thinking about a research career. But as a social scientist, I really thought, well, I don't need money to run the studies I want to run. I can run them on a really small budget. So I thought, well, I don't need to invest my time that way then in grant writing because I can just get money by um, running a small scale study or something like that.
0: College and grad school made me an expert in living lean. Um, And even starting this podcast, I was able to start it on a shoestring budget. The ideal way, however, is to do things well-funded, to know that you need to sustain your well-being so that you don't burn out. And grants can be a way that we we can do that. In the book, you talk to us about how we're going to work through the process of writing a fundable grant and get across the finish line. But one of the things you want us to know is we have to have an idea. We have to generate a good idea. And one thing you stress is that good ideas come from our values. And you have sort of a four-step part of figuring out where we're going to get our ideas and align them with our values. And so it's four questions that you invite us to ask. One is, what does the world need? Two is, what do you love? Three is, what are you good at? And four is what could you be paid for? How did you develop this framework? It really resonates with me, but I'm curious where it came from. Yes. So this framework actually comes from a
1: Japanese concept called Ikigai, which is, what is your reason for being? And I was first introduced to this concept through actually someone on Twitter, Carlos, he's somebody that I follow. um, And he was talking about this framework of Ikigai. And I thought, well, wow, that's such a helpful way to, to break down values. And when you use your values to generate ideas, you really get a chance to stick close to doing work that you care about. Problem in grant writing is a lot of times we're trained to focus first on what you could be paid for. So that's how people talk to you about grants. Oh, you should be writing this type of grant um, because you have a shot at it. And that can be okay and that can be a good strategy because, of course, it's nice to get. Um, funding or support for an idea. But if you follow that pathway of just focusing on what you can get paid for, you can run the risk of developing ideas that you really don't care about, don't want to actually study. And that means you end up spending a lot of your limited time here on Earth focused on an idea that isn't important to you. Uh, I love this quote that I heard from Princess Chan, and he talks about how, you know, our biggest fear in life shouldn't be of failure, but it should be of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And I really see that as being this idea of just chasing the money. Grant writing can be about chasing the money, and there are lots of great scholars who have to chase money to to support their type of role that they're in. But we can ask these other questions about well what is it that you actually think the world needs and what is it that you love what is it that you're good at and when we think in that way then we really can use grant writing as a way to move your career in ways you care about so I can give a few examples like i had a chance to talk to a phenomenal researcher who was talking about how in her work in the emergency department she was seeing young people who had been admitted for suicidal ideation and potential risk for suicide thoughts and harm taking behaviors. And the thing that caregivers kept asking her was, well, should we allow our children back on social media? And she really didn't know the answer to that question and she couldn't find the answer in research. So she used that information she was getting to write her next grant. And that is an example of thinking about what is it the world needs. This was a question that parents and caregivers were asking her. Is this okay? And we need research to help us understand, is there a risk to letting young people back on social media after an emergency department visit? Is that a risk? or what should the limits be how can we guide caregivers and she saw that need and used grant writing as a way to address that need in the world and that is just a more fulfilling way to direct your career in my opinion
0: and the book itself came out of that idea what what does the world need what does your immediate world need the scholars around you the scholars coming up behind you what do we need and we need a book on how to write grants i've taught a couple of workshops on how to uh, look for grants and fellowships. And it really focused on how to look for them. And the overwhelming question right after it was, well, where's a book on this so we can we can keep going? And I was like, we need one. But there, there isn't really one I can point you to. So um, this book is an example of what you just outlined as well. Thank you so much. And that means the world to
1: me, because that's exactly what I hoped this book could address. That, you know, I, it's not that I am the most senior researcher that I have written the most grants, but I really did see that there was this need in the world, and that people were trying to figure out ways to shape their careers and develop these skills. And it's so frustrating when you're ready to work hard, but you don't know where to start. So that's what I hoped this book could address that need to just have clear direction so that you're not wasting your time just trying to figure out what to do, but that you can instead focus your energy on the tasks that will help you write more fundable grants
0: faster. Sometimes the world shows us what it needs, which is step one of the framework. The ER employee was able to identify what parents were saying they needed. Uh, Scholars were able to share with you that they really need a book on how to write grants. So that helped inspire this book. And step two is do what you love, which most people, if you ask them to sit down and brainstorm what they love, that part tends to flow out of us fairly quickly. But step three is what are you good at? And I'll just speak for myself and believe other people are in the same boat. It can be really hard for us to, to name what we're good at. We can just sit there with our blank piece of paper and our pen and wonder what we're supposed to write down. One of the things you encourage us to think about is what people come to us to ask for help about. They're then signaling to us that we're good at it. That's why they came to us. Can you talk to us about how for those of us who lack some self-awareness maybe, uh, how we figure out what we're good at?
1: Yes. And I don't actually think it's about lacking self-awareness because we as scholars, we are trained up in a world where we look to the stars as experts in our field. And they're the people that we tout as the people who are really good at things. Uh, And then we often have to uh, think of ourselves in this hierarchy in relation to those people. But instead, I think that we need to dismantle that message because we are experts in areas. Each of us, especially by the time you were working on your dissertation, you have spent more time thinking about a topic than anybody else, even anybody on your committee. You are truly an expert on an issue that nobody else has spent as much time thinking about as you. So I this section of the book is really about honoring that, that a lot of times we feel like we have to couch or put caveats on our knowledge, but we run the risk then of never thinking of ourselves as experts. And this is especially hard for scholars from historically marginalized groups as well. And so I I want us to get a chance to rethink that and That can involve things like, well, people do come to you. What are people calling you up about? So if you're a graduate student or if you are um, in maybe a further along in your career type of position, what is it people call you about? Because I guarantee that all of us have someone who calls us and says, hey, can I get your opinion on this? Or I thought you might know something about this. I would love to hear what you think. And those are great signs for all of us because When people are turning you to you to ask you questions like that or wanting your insights, those are great flickers and signs that you are and are seen as an expert in an area. So um, I think really paying attention to those kinds of signs, but also what is it that lights you up? What are the things that you double down on and seek to spend more time on? So If you are taking classes, what are the kinds of classes you choose to take? Or what when you go to conferences, what are the kinds of sessions that you really want to think about? And that it's tied to the second pillar around what is it you love, but it's also a sign that if something, if you love something, it's usually a sign that you actually have talent in that area as well. And that people are starting to either seek you out or you are starting to build a wealth of expertise in a particular area. And that can be a great place to um, start to double down on and think about your own expertise in that area.
0: As you were talking, I I thought of a couple of things. One is that In departments, you can be formally or informally the person who just gets a particular kind of work dumped on you again and again. Often, if you're a woman, it's service work. And academia can really undervalue service work. So it might be that a lot of the things that we're good at, we... For whatever reason, undervalue, and yet, if we framed it slightly differently, we could write a grant so that that service work that's overburdening and going way beyond your paid hours could become a program that you had a grant to run.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think that is such a great point. You know, taking a look at your calendar and what is it that is taking a lot of your time, and it's. It's often a sign sometimes that you're overburdened, but it's also a sign that you have invested a lot of time in an area and are becoming good at it. I'll give you an example from my own work. Um, When I was writing this book, I was starting to also think about social media and how social media works. And um, I ended up spending a lot of time trying to learn social media. And so I am working on projects now out of social media because just paying attention to, oh, I actually like thinking about social media and I'm starting to understand how this works, and I feel like I'm starting to develop an area of expertise in this. So I'm using that as a starting point for some of my next projects and grants.
0: Another thought that uh, sprang to mind about the what are you good at um, was that some studies indicate that women tend to stop resubmitting grants and fellowship applications far more quickly than men do. So. For the same number of rejections, a man will keep going, but a woman will take it as a sign that she, it's just not right for her. She's not going to get it, and she'll stop. And for a number of grants, when when people uh, do some studies of how many times does the average applicant apply before they're funded, it can be something like the average applicant applies five times, which then... Average being a mathematical term can mean that many of the people who were funded applied eight times, nine times. Um, And yet what we see often in the numbers also that come out is that um, male applicants are more often funded. So it could be that they apply until they get a yes. And so where I'm going with that is women may take the no's as this is something I'm not good at. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad you're raising this issue because it's
1: not just women, but it's also scholars from historically marginalized groups that we know that we both submit at lower rates and also resubmit at lower rates generally. And that matters for exactly the reasons you said, because when you submit less often and you resubmit less often, you have lower chances of being funded. So across funders around the world, we see funding disparities in how men and women are funded and how white principal investigators are funded as compared to Black scholars, Asian scholars, and more. So the real message and the heart of this book is really making sure that everybody understands that in order to get a grant, the most important step that you need to do is submit your ideas but then resubmit your ideas Um, because submitting at all, the first barrier and if you don't submit you definitely won't get funded that's what happened to me and that was the biggest barrier for me and is a big reason why i wrote this book but then the second biggest barrier is exactly what you said christina that we have to let everybody know that resubmitting is part of what grant writing and grantsmanship is because when you resubmit you give yourself a higher long-term chance of being funded and The thing about grant writing is it's not about who gets funded on the first time. It is about who gets funded on the fifth time, the 10th time. And so if you are willing to keep putting yourself out there, and I know that there are many systemic reasons why it's hard to do that, but if you can keep putting yourself out there, learning from your experiences, I am confident that everybody listening will be able to write a fundable grant, but it does involve not just submitting, but also resubmitting.
0: Often when you get a no, there will be some feedback about why. Some some grants won't. They'll tell you flat out, we, we won't explain to you why you didn't get this grant or this fellowship or this award. Um, but some will uh, allow you to have feedback. And while you're still stinging from the no and the rejection and the bad feelings that that kicks up because we're all human beings and we want to just sit with our blanket and watch hallmark channel until we feel better (laughs) um that can be a hard place to sort of start taking in why why the reviewer said no but when you get ready to looking at those um results can be really helpful um i can just share one that i applied for i think two times um i didn't get but By accident, um, on the second one, I found where the information was briefly publicly available. And I was feeling really, really crummy about myself and had decided in this particular area I would not submit for grants again because clearly I sucked. And it turned out that my the committee that had seen mine had recommended it be in a more advanced category. So I would have won if they'd left me in the lower category. Ah. They put me in a higher category and I didn't pass by a fraction of a ah. percent. Once I found that out, I was like, oh, this doesn't feel at all the way it felt two mm-hmm. weeks ago when mm-hmm. I needed my blanket and yes. homework channel. <laughs>
1: Yes, and I'm so glad you shared that story. And thank you for sharing your experiences, because I think it's so important for everybody to hear that, um, that there are things happening behind the scenes that you may not know about, that can change how you think about this experience. And so often, scholars, when you're new to grant writing, you believe that a rejection means you failed. But I, as a psychologist, I really challenge that as something that we call uh, distorted. Thinking because the evidence doesn't align with the idea that a rejection means you failed. In fact, as you mentioned, Christina, for most people, in order to get a grant, you have to submit many times. So, at the National Science Foundation, for example, the average investigator submits at least 2.3 proposals for every proposal they have funded. So, getting a rejection simply means you've got one of those rejections on your belt. You are on your way to getting funded, you just have to keep going. But the other thing to know is that everybody gets rejected. It doesn't mean you fail. I have seen great videos of a Nobel Prize winner, for example, talking about how on the day she won the Nobel Prize, she got a grant rejected. So you can be at the heights of your career and still get a grant rejected. It doesn't mean you failed. It just means not at this moment. Try again. Try with a different funder. Definitely use the feedback to help you understand what could change or what could be improved. And even funders that don't give feedback, sometimes you can ask for feedback directly, and sometimes they will share some of the feedback with you. I, I've interviewed a lot of people about this issue. So as part of my background research for the book, I interviewed 100 experts. And a lot of people have told me how even places that say explicitly, they won't give feedback. Some people have had some good luck reaching out and saying, I know you don't give feedback, but would it be possible to share some of the feedback with me as a learning experience? And I've had people say that they've had some successes with that. So it never hurts to ask. And to remember that working with funders is really about building relationships, trying to find funders who will like your ideas, who will want to support who you are and the directions that you're going as a scholar, and really not taking it personally because a rejection, find ways to use that rejection in your favor. So for example, with a rejected grant, I've been able to turn rejected grants into things like concept papers. I always talk about rejected grants in my annual reviews as as evidence that I'm putting my ideas out there, that I'm working on ideas. And then you can always break up a grant into smaller pieces, try it different funders, resubmit again to the same funder, or use pieces of that grant in a future grant um, if you're not able to get support for that current iteration of the idea.
0: And as you remind us in the book, writing the grant, we should be aware of our values and our personal mission and our understanding of why the world needs this. And in the process of writing it, whether it gets funded or not, you may end up with a conference paper that you can write or a community uh, presentation that you can make because you got so passionate about this um, and you've gotten a lot of clarity on what this actually is. Absolutely. And I, I'm
1: so glad you're mentioning that because that is a thing that doesn't always get talked about in grant writing, that really grant writing is not about chasing the money. It can be, but it's really about chasing big ideas or things you care about, ways that you want to see the world. And that's what I heard over and over in my interviews, that people may not have started out wanting to write grants, but grant writing has become one of the favorite parts of their job because grant writing is really thinking about the future. What is it you want the world to look like in the future? How do you hope to shape the world? What are the challenges that we face? And what are the solutions you see to that? And what is it that you think your field needs to be doing? And what could that look like if you only had the money?
0: And it may help you figure out the places you want to pivot. You shared earlier that your career has had several pivots by really getting in touch with what you wanted to do next, how you wanted to do it, and how that aligned with what was important to you. When you write a grant, often for me at the end, I think, well, now I really want to do this thing. (laughs) And sometimes I surprise myself because I'm overreaching or I'm going towards something I didn't think I would go towards. Whether or not I get the grant, is sort of out of my control once I've done everything and and handed it in. But whether or not I stay passionate about that feeling of, well, now I really want to do this thing is up to me and what this thing might look like and what new direction it might take me. And we often feel as scholars, we have to be very linear and very logical, like all of these things fit together like Legos. And maybe they do, but we can usually see that in hindsight Mm -hmm. and not in the moment. Grants can really help us or at least the process of writing a grant can really help us get aligned with those moments where it may be in our best interest to make some sort of pivot.
1: Yes, absolutely. That grants can really be generative and thinking about, well, where do you want to pivot or is it that you want to invest more deeply in this area and using, and that's why I focus in chapter two, so much on thinking about what is it you value right now? And and that will shit change over your career. But if we don't stop to ask those questions, then absolutely, we all operate in systems where you can feel very forced to be linear. And that at the end of the day, isn't why most of us became scholars. You know, we became scholars for the most part because we're passionate about ideas. You know, we're really curious about the world. And so making sure to give yourself space to think that way, I think is really important. And grants can be a key way to do that.
0: Towards the end of the book, in chapter 13 and 14, you help us understand the reviewers of grants in an effort to help us write better grants. We shared in Soundcheck that we both have had experience being grant reviewers. And because I've had that experience, I really appreciated how your experience as a grant reviewer helped inform your guidance to the scholar's writing grants to understand how reviewers feel and what they're looking for and the conditions that they're working under really can help us push through how complicated it might be to follow every guideline that the grant has. But once you take us in the mindset of the reviewer, we can understand better why the guidelines look the way that they do. So for listeners, can you take us in the mindset of the reviewers?
1: Yes. So reviewers, the important thing to understand about reviewers is that first, reviewers are reviewing grants as service work. This is work that you do on top of your regular job. So often reviewers are having to review during the night times or on weekends. This means that reviewers are already coming into your grant. They're stressed, they're tired, they're overworked. And you need to understand that about reviewers, because even though reviewers generally want to support outstanding scholars and great ideas, that's why they volunteer to do this in the first place, even though that is true, they're also grappling with being overworked and tired. So knowing that, you want to make it really easy to not annoy your tired reviewers, but also make it easy for them to support and champion you. And the thing that you need to understand about reviewers in grant writing is that all reviewers are usually charged with evaluating your grant on certain criteria. And those criteria come from the funder. But when you understand what those criteria are and you write in a way that makes it easy for reviewers to find the information they need, it makes it much easier for reviewers to be excited about you because when it's easy to find what they're looking for in the grant, reviewers don't feel tired or overburdened or stressed trying to search your grant for that information. So let me just give an example. In National Science Foundation grants, for example reviewers have to rate the broader impacts of your grant and intellectual merit of your grant. So they're looking for that specific information. And if you bury that information, now a reviewer who's already tired and stressed, they're digging through your grant, trying to figure out how your grant addresses issues of broader impacts and what the intellectual merit is of your grant. But they have actually really specific things that they need to find in your grant and write about. So make all that information easy to find, because at the end of the day, reviewers are the people that are in the room advocating for you. So you need your work to speak to reviewers so that reviewers can speak to the rest of the panel and to funders and hopefully understand and champion out why your work matters so much. So you want to make it really easy for them to do that.
0: And you invite us to avoid things like jargon and making the page look too dense. One thing that you talk about is the importance of white space. And as someone who reads a huge amount for this podcast, (laughs) I have grown to appreciate (laughs) white space because I'm a human being and my eyes only go so far during the day. Much as I want to read even more than I do, I'm very passionate about reading the right space actually really helps your brain and it really helps you have that pause to digest what you just read rather than miss something that is important. Mm -hmm. And so the way that you lay it out needs to be humane. (laughs) Um, And you also encourage headings and, and you have a whole bunch in that chapter that, that listeners can, can look to, to understand more about how do present it in a way that's readable for the readers. Um, But can you talk to us about avoiding jargon? Because by the time most people get to the point where they're writing a grant, we have been highly trained in using a certain type of coded language for our peers.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. And that is a big sticking point in
1: grant writing, because the thing that people don't always realize is that your reviewers won't always be your close set of peers. So I'm a clinical psychologist. And so I talk in a way that other clinical psychologists understand really well. But what if on the panel, there are other psychologists that aren't clinical. So we have social psychologists, for example, or we have sociologists, or even, or scientists, which happens on some of the panels that I submit to these are people who aren't using the exact same jargon that I'm using in my specific face space and jargon creates this barrier between you and your reviewers who are your most important readers on your grants so for example if I um, assume that everybody understands the DSM criteria for PTSD, but not everybody is a clinical psychologist. I've just created a barrier for my reviewers to understand my work. So you really want to avoid doing that because you actually want reviewers to be your ally. They're your best ally in the room and getting support for your work. So you, you want to speak in a way that is inviting and understandable to these people that you are trying to get to understand your ideas. So you don't want to create... Uh, ways where it makes it hard to understand your ideas. In a lot of grants, one of the things that I see when I'm reading them is people love acronyms and they get really excited about acronyms. So you'll see an acronym like ASPIRE, A-S-P-I-R-E, and that they have made fit these ideas that they're working on in the grant, but it doesn't actually fit. Um, the rest of the grant. So you have an ASPIRE acronym, you have another acronym XYZ, and so your reviewers are tracking across your grant maybe 20 different acronyms. Now, to read your grant well, a reviewer has to create a dictionary of your acronyms and what they mean to be able to understand your work. And that's a huge barrier to getting your stressed, tired reviewer to be excited about your work, because it was just so hard to even get in the door to understand what it is you're talking about. So these are reasons why, just like you said, Christina, being humane and empathizing with the reviewer is so important because in grant writing, your grant is not about you as an individual itself, yourself. And It's about your reviewers, your grant is written for reviewers and the funders, it's not written for you. So prioritize the needs of your reviewers and the funder, not your own needs. And as a personal um, scholar, you know, I love acronyms like ASPIRE that have something, have some cool meaning that is kind of related to my work. That's really neat. But that is about my needs. That's not about reviewer needs or funder needs.
0: As I was listening, I was thinking how the jargon that we use in one field is not as unique as we think it is. And so the other field may have similar jargon, but it may mean something completely different. And to that point, you have a very um, helpful glossary of terms, which I greatly appreciate because whether or not... We uh, have jargon misunderstandings. A lot of us use terms that we just assume by now everyone knows, and there can be great embarrassment in saying, I actually haven't known since my 20s what that term means. And so you have a whole glossary for us of words and terms that we're going to want to know as we write grants. How did you come to write this? Did you crowdsource it? Did you um, did you learn by trial and error? Yes. Um, thank you so
1: much for bringing up the glossary because it, it goes back to an earlier point you made about places where people get stuck. And this was one of the first places that I got stuck with in grant writing. I told you how my administrator said, you need to write a federal grant. Well, I didn't know what a federal grant was and they didn't know how to find the answer. So even just terminology, which relates to jargon, and there's a lot of jargon in grant writing, this kind of jargon and terminology, they can be a huge barrier because you start to get the sense that, oh, Everybody else must know what these Terms mean, and I feel like I can't ask because asking will demonstrate that I don't know and it will say something about my level of expertise or how novice I am, and I'm embarrassed by that. Or at least that was the case for me. That in that situation, I probably should have just said to my administrator, What do you mean (laughs) by a federal grant? Uh, But I didn't feel like I could ask that in that moment because it seemed like uh, they thought it was very clear that I should know the differences at this point in my career and I should be ready ready to hit the ground running. So that's why I put in the glossary, because I don't want terminology to be the thing that makes you feel like you can't submit a grant. Because again, grant writing is just a skill. And it means that we need to learn different terms to be able to navigate this world. But these are all terms that we can understand. And that's why I put the glossary in. And to get the terms for the glossary, it was really Thinking about across my interviews, well, what are terms that keep coming up uh, that uh, experts are saying you really need to understand to be able to write a fundable grant and just flagging any terms as I was writing that I thought might not be familiar to readers and adding those to the glossary. So things like um, indirect costs, what are indirect costs and how do you figure out what that looks like? How does that relate to the idea of direct costs and why does that matter to people?
0: What were some of the terms that you found most commonly people didn't know that you wanted to be sure you put in?
1: Uh, Indirect costs was a big one uh, for sure because indirect costs are very confusing even to people who have been scholars for a long time or have been in the grants writing world for a long time. Uh, So indirect costs are different from what are called direct costs. So those are the Rank costs for getting your grant going and off the ground, so costs for personnel, participants, equipment, computers. And they're contrasted with indirect costs, which are costs for keeping your institution running or um, the organization you're working in running and their costs for overhead um, or keeping libraries open, et cetera. And they're charged on top of whatever your direct costs are. So let's say you have a grant that has, direct costs for $100,000. So you're saying that your grant is gonna cost $100,000 to run in order to support students on the grant, to be able to pay your participants and to uh, get the equipment, the computers you need and the software you need to run the grant. So if it's $100,000 for the direct costs, On top of that, your institution or organization often charges indirect costs when we're talking about something like a federal grant. So that's why people care about federal grants. And federal grants are, in the United States, they're government-funded grants like National Science Foundation grants, National Institutes of Health grants. And federal grants come with set negotiated indirect cost rates. Now, I know this is very confusing to explain um, audio only, but an indirect cost. So for example, my institution, the current indirect cost rate is 56.5% for indirect costs. And that means for every $100,000 I bring in, my institution will get an additional 56.5%. So $56,500 on top of the $100,000. And It's because of these indirect costs that are often attached to federal grants. That's why my first administrator really cared about me getting a federal grant, because grants were worth more to the institution if I could get some of these indirect costs to come in as well. I appreciate you.
0: That's a long example. I, I really appreciate you making it such a clear example, because. That's a very common thing that shows up in grants is they want to know indirect costs and direct costs, and some will prohibit one of those categories. And if you then write into the body of your grant something that clearly flags for the reviewer as something that we're not allowed to fund, we have to throw out your whole grant, even Mm -hmm. though we loved it.
1: Yes, and I'm so glad you're bringing that up because that is one of the key grant writing skills to understand, that to write a fundable grant, you need to read the rules for and guidelines for the grant you're writing because funders want you to follow the rules. So they put out packets of information about what's possible, what's not possible. And it's your job as a grant writer to read those rules carefully, because unfortunately, grant writing is different from paper writing in that if you're not compliant, it means often that you're no longer considered. You lose the opportunity. So the stakes are really high in grant writing to make sure that you're reading all of the guidelines and rules. And that's different from paper writing because you know if you submit a paper and you use AMA style instead of APA style, well, sometimes first, nobody will notice. Or second, uh, sometimes it will just come back to you and they'll say, can you reformat this? That doesn't happen in grant writing. Usually if you fail to follow a rule, you get disqualified.
0: And often the places where people get disqualified is in how they're going to break down the numbers. I need the money because I'm going to spend it on X, Y, and Z. And you honestly believe Z is a coverable expense, but because you didn't understand necessarily the the complexity of some of the terms, you didn't know that, no, what you asked for under Z is one of the, non allowable expenses. And it's one of the great things about the glossary is you can keep going back to it and making sure that you clearly understand the terms so that you don't accidentally put a disqualifying thing into the body of your grant. Absolutely.
1: And the other piece I hope that everybody walks away with today is understanding that it's always okay to ask. I want to empower folks to know that it is okay to ask if you're not sure, because your institution and funders, we all want to support outstanding scholars. And it's in our best interest to make sure you understand this world and this landscape. So if there's something when you're reading the guidelines that, oh, I'm not really sure what this means, it is okay to find someone at your institution and say, would you mind meeting with me to talk about this? Because I don't fully understand this and I'm trying to be compliant.
0: And sometimes there's a program officer at the um, organization themselves who is offering the grants or they will have informational webinars. Do you want to talk about other ways we can learn about how to make sure our grant is really ready to go? You do have a wonderful checklist for scholars they can use to make sure they're ready, but there's a few other steps like trying to get a copy of grant that was successful as sort of a, a mentor text?
1: Sure. So one of the things that I realized in writing this book is how much grant writing is truly a social endeavor. So even though you often write grants on your own or with your close collaborators, to be successful in grant writing, you really want to involve and leverage as many relationships as you can. So that starts in your own institution by making sure you reach out to whoever it is that works in your grants or foundations office, making sure you connect with them and develop a relationship with them to get their help. But it also means connecting to mentors. And you may feel like, I don't have great mentors in this area, or I'm not closely connected with folks who've had success in grant writing. So it is okay, and I really encourage folks to do this, to start to develop those relationships, start to reach out to people and network out to people who do have grant writing success and who will be invested in your career. But in addition to that, as you mentioned, Christina, talk to a program officer. So program officers are people who are employed by the funders, and it's their job to meet with outstanding scholars, like the folks who are listening and hear their ideas because they want to hear cutting edge ideas and they wanna understand How to advance the field. So, they want to meet with you and they hopefully can help mentor and help develop out your career. But I do recommend not talking to program officers until you've done some homework on what your ideas are and how it could fit with a funder. Because by the time you meet with a program officer, you want to make sure you are really coming across as somebody who is dedicated and has done the hard work of understanding how the funder operates in terms of um, having read the materials that they have online, but also that you've developed out at least a one page prospectus on what your idea can look like. So that's one piece. But then as you mentioned, Christina, getting samples. So I do have samples that are openly available funded grants that I've collected on my website and I'm happy to link that in the show notes. But, um, but if you don't see grants there that you would like and don't feel pressured to go to my website but i just know that i have that there as hopefully a resource for folks but if you don't see grants there it is okay to ask other people if they might be willing to share their grants with you because that's an important way that we share social capital and share our understanding of how different funders work so it's okay to reach out for samples and i give some templates in the book for ways you can ask for samples and um different ways that you can work towards developing a strong enough relationship with somebody that you feel like it might be okay to ask. So those are just some examples of of ways to develop out your network to help increase your chances of success.
0: And listeners will find more in the book as well to help support them as they figure out this important journey to getting more funding, which I'll just go ahead and make a blanket statement all scholars need. Um, As we're running out of time, I'd like to ask you, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope that... Uh, For
1: folks listening, that you know that you have it within you to write a fundable grant. Uh, That was something that I didn't fully believe when I was getting started. I thought that, well, maybe I've chosen the wrong profession if it turns out that grants are needed. But knowing what I know now and having had a chance to sit down and interview a lot of people, I know that this is just a skill that anybody who is willing to put in hard work can learn. It just takes dedication, it takes practice, and it takes developing a community around you who will support you in getting support for your ideas. And I hope that everybody hears that and knows that. um, I hope that you submit your ideas and resubmit because this is possible.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Betty Lai, and telling us about your new book, The Grant Writing Guide, A Roadmap for Scholars. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. This is the Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.